When I was briefed on the balloon, I ordered the Pentagon to shoot it down on Wednesday as soon as possible. They decided that the best time to do that was if it got over water outside within our within 12 mile limit. It's Monday, February the 6th, 2023, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today, which means I get to introduce the stars of our show. Three of my colleagues we jokingly refer to as the Goodfellows. That would include the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, and the geostrategist Lieutenant General H. Rob McMaster. They are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. Rounding out our conversation today, we have a Goodfellows favorite returning to the show, backed by popular demand, Victor Davis Hansen. Mm -hmm. Victor is a Martin and Ely mm -hmm. Anderson Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He is a historian and classicist. He is a prolific author and columnist. On top of all of that, he runs a family farm in the San Joaquin Valley. I think his next book should probably be on time management, because I'm not sure how he manages to do all this, but somehow he makes it all work very well. Mm -hmm. Victor, welcome back to the show. Thank you guys for having me. Okay, so I think you can all guess where we're going to start today. I have a lot of questions for you, wise gentlemen, with regard to the balloon, such as what is China's intention here, such as what is the proper response by the United States? Did we do the right thing shooting it down? What's the next step? Uh, what, if any, reprisals will there be on the part of Beijing? What next for diplomacy, Neil? Does Tony Blinken need to get on a plane to go to Beijing right away or not? HR, what about the Pentagon and the White House communicating? The question of whether or not the military has been watching this for years and not always letting the White House know. Victor, what's your big takeaway here? Well, I was uh, a little disturbed because almost all of the explanations that we got from the administration either had to be updated or were misleading. We were told first that it was not really a surveillance of uh, satellite of any importance, and then it leaked out that perhaps a slow-moving uh, balloon had some advantages at least. Then we were told that they didn't want to shoot it down because of fragments, but of course it, it entered the Aleutians where there's one person per square mile and there was coastal areas where there was nobody and then five people per square mile in Montana. And, um, and so we, we went through this entire process for a week and then I think finally the pressure of the media, popular anger, the opposition party and the State of the Union coming up. I don't think he wanted to give a State of the Union when the reply or the rebuttal will be, will you let this thing go over the country? And the only mystery of it is, um, I mean, there's some talk that it was the Chinese lost control, but it doesn't really matter what they say. It's just the idea that the United States allowed this device to go over its uh, key locations, strategically at least, militarily, and it sends a message to Australia and South Korea and Japan and Taiwan, Philippines, whether inadvertent or not, that I think the Chinese will say to them, this is the this is your patron. This is the guy that you're under the nuclear umbrella, some of you. This is the guy that's going to protect you. And then the other final thing is we know what would happen if you I mean, we send there's a game where we all send satellites. But if we send a balloon at 45 to 60,000 feet across the length of China, we know what they would do. We know what they'd say because they did it in 2001 with a plane that was in international space, an EP-3, that crashed after being rammed by a Chinese pilot. And, you know, we know what the opposition, I think HR knows as a member of the Trump administration, if in, say, 2018, a Russian balloon went across the length of the United States and you guys didn't do anything, they would say that Trump is a Russian puppet or asset or something. So... The asymmetry of it is glaring. 
There's always two interpretations to an event like this. One is uh, devious plans uh, or perhaps very smart plans, and the other is gross incompetence. Uh, the devious plan option is, um, you know, there is an advantage to countries allowing each other to have some, uh, to, to be looking at each other's stuff. Uh, there was, a, you know, the Eisenhower administration proposed, why don't, why don't we allow overflights of U.S. and Russia so we'll both not get scared about missile gaps that aren't there? Uh, so, you know, what is it that we are doing to China that we kind of the game was we secretly allow them to have our balloons here and we do something else there? Then that got perturbed. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm trying my best. And, and I this think is you be need fair. to try harder, John. I think okay. Gary Powers well, was shot down on a U-2 and Eisenhower denied well, him. He was spying, et cetera, and that caused an international crisis. No, no, the open the open skies uh, agreement did not uh, go through. Still, there's a there is an idea that says we allow you to do some stuff. You you allow us to. Maybe that's what happened at Philip Park. But then to HR, how is it possible that the U.S. if it's incompetence that we do not have the ability to detect a balloon? I know the balloon itself doesn't reflect radar, but come on, you know, just all you need is people with people with uh, people with binoculars to see it. Uh, and how do we not have the capacity to shoot down a balloon, to collect a balloon uh, intact in midair? Uh, all we've got is a, uh, a F, what is it? Which F was it? I forgot. An F something or Me other too. that can go within 20,000 feet of it and shoot an incredibly expensive missile that then blows up and then destroys the balloon. I mean, in, in World War II, there was stuff you could drag out of a C-47 to grab people off our mountaintop. <laughs> the, the capacity, how do we not have detection and capacity to grab this thing out of the air? We do have detection. So I think it was detected. I think it was really goes back to what Victor said. I think they just didn't, they didn't release it until, you know, the, the information that this balloon was over, uh, <laughs> over, over North America. Well, why didn't they so, do it? Uh, if they detect it, why didn't they do anything about it? Uh, I, I think because the Pentagon is like the most risk averse organization yeah, or government absolutely. sometimes. I mean, I think that's part of it, you know, and, and, uh, I mean, I, I, of course, we have the capacity to shoot it down. I don't think, I think when something's at 60,000 feet, it's kind of tough to, you know, to deploy a net, I think, to catch it or you know, to bring it down, to bring it down. Uh, no, no, we don't, we don't have a net to catch it. It is, in a it is less hard. spectacular fashion. But if it know. mattered, we would have that net. It's not <laughs> technologically that hard to grab a balloon or to shoot it down effectively. Well, what, what are my, one of my favorite quotations from Gen General Ernest Harmon from World War II was he said, if it, if it takes a toothpick, use a baseball bat. And I guess that's what we did, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we waited till it could traverse the whole U.S., transmitting back whatever its information was to China on the way. Yeah. So that it just does not make any sense. No, and I don't know what we did. I don't know we did for, if we did anything from an electronic warfare perspective either while it was transiting. I mean, I you know maybe you know maybe we did interrupt signals uh, communication from it. Uh, you know, I, I hope so. Joe Biden uh, so. today blamed the Pentagon. He basically said he had ordered this earlier and he got uh, a recommendation i suppose it was from the joint chiefs ubiquitous mark milley not to shoot it down and then finally when he was pressed he said i'll take care of it but their lady uh, jean pierre said today or yesterday that um he was following the advice of his military advisor and then she kind of hinted that until joe put his foot down this is outrageous state of the union coming up i suppose so that I don't know why the uh, Austin and Millie, if they were the people who were advising him, would not have ordered immediate destruction of it. Well, here's another scenario, Victor, and that yeah. is that the administration was very keen uh, to improve relations with China. Mm -hmm. That was the reason that Secretary of State Blinken was going to go 
uh, to Beijing, and this uh, threatened to spoil that uh, initiative in the direction of detente. I think that's yeah. the most plausible explanation that I can come up with. They really uh, were wishing it wasn't happening. And unfortunately for them, the Montana local press uh, has people with binoculars uh, and they they blew the story. Uh, I think that, that, that Millie and, and presumably Blinken too were praying the thing would, uh, would keep going uh, and the skies would be sufficiently overcast that Nobody would notice, and Secretary Blinken could go on his way. I th- I think that's the most plausible explanation. And that asked the question, it was sort of like Anchorage, Alaska then, that even though maybe if you believe the Chinese, they lost control, they must have known that you wouldn't, if they wanted a summit with Blinken, they wouldn't have released in the general direction of the United States a balloon that could go in its territory. So they were trying to humiliate mm-hmm. us in the way they did at Anchorage in March well, of 2017. No, no, here here I think the lesson of history, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, is never underestimate incompetence. It's entirely plausible that the part of China that's sending balloons up isn't communicating with the part of China that's running dipl- diplomacy, and that somebody is headed to uh, a, a labor <laughs> farm in the middle of Tibet uh, as a result of this uh, snap. Because it's not clear that that this is. Well, we know that is actually yeah. the head. Of, the head of the Chinese Meteorological Weather Service has already been canned. So let's assume he's headed off to Tibet. Ah. <laughs> well, that's it. This you is a I mean, and, is... and what what about the Canadians? Uh, you know, why didn't the Canadians just went over their territory for a long time? <laughs> well, we don't, <laughs> with all due respect, Trudeau explains that one word explains the Canadians. But it doesn't really matter what we can go in all these hypotheticals. Right. Uh, at some point, they, they let off a balloon in our direction. We, If we're going to spy them, we have certain protocols. We don't send balloons right over their, their territory. They knew it, and we let it go on too long, and that sent a message. Uh, I know some of our allies say, well, you might have overreacted, but privately, they know that that's worrisome, that this administration did not react right away. Don't you think well, I'm, 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 I'm glad we shot it down, though. So finally, I mean, I, I yes. was worried about I, I you guys know I predicted I said, OK, we're going to shoot this thing down eventually, you know, but but uh, but it, it fits into a broader pattern of of Chinese violation of many nations sovereign territory, right? All the overflights that we've seen uh, directed toward you know, toward Japan uh, you know, and, and yeah. uh, South Korea. Uh, of course, you know, they're, they're building islands in the South China Sea in what would be the largest land grab in history if they if they succeed. Uh, you know, they've been bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier. So it's a larger disturbing pattern. And I think uh, you mentioned already, Victor, the Hainan Island incident with a, with a P-3 yeah. you know, was yeah. forced to land. Uh, you know, that was an o- overzealous PLA Air Force pilot yeah. doing what he thought his superiors wanted him to do. So I think, you know, this jingoistic, uh, you know, uh, uh, rhetoric that you hear out of the party, it's having an effect on its own armed forces and, and its own uh, you know, other departments and agencies, uh, even maybe uh, apparently the, the, the meteorological <laughs> institution. But that's having an effect on us, too. I mean, if you compare this administration on Ukraine and China, I don't. I, I agree with most of you that that Putin is saber rattling, but he's giving a more overt nuclear threat warning to us than Ch- China is. And yet, this administration, as you say, is so risk averse that they are not reacting to an affront to their home airspace sovereignty from a nuclear power China. I guess because they don't want to get into brinksmanship or something, but they're perfectly willing to discount as you know, just rhetoric, a 
uh, nuclear threat from Russia on a proxy war 5,000 miles away where they seem more concerned about the nuclear threat than they are to their own to their own homeland. I don't understand that. But this leads us to the observation that that we're in a Cold War and this is what Cold Wars are like. I and mean, this is why we can think immediately of the Gary Paris uh, case in 1960, which led to the failure of a summit. I think if you're in Cold War, there is this inherent tension between the need to try to get close to the other side to avoid World War III and the fact that it's a Cold War and they're not exactly going to stop spying on us any more than we're going to stop spying on them. So I think this just confirms the Cold War hypothesis. But there's a more interesting question, Victor, that I have for you, and that relates the Ukraine war to the attempt to improve relations with China. I think it is dawning on people in Washington that the net beneficiary, the number one net beneficiary of the war in Ukraine is in fact China. Uh, because uh, although we thought cleverly we were bleeding Russia dry with Ukrainian manpower and Western weapons, in practice, we're running down our own stocks of weapons. And what's China's uh, position? It gets Russian oil at very steeply discounted prices, and it can sell all kinds of things to Russia. Chinese exports to Russia are way up as long as it stays on the right side of our sanctions line. And I think what they've realized is that this isn't working out quite as planned, and they need to rethink their overall geopolitical strategy. And one way of doing that is to try to improve relations with China. We can't know what's going on in Beijing. That's a completely closed black box. But I think we can tell a little bit better what's going on in Washington. And what I see is a realization that, that the grand strategy of the Biden administration has got us into a pretty hard to stop war, uh, albeit one that we're fighting by proxy, but it's created a real vulnerability in the rest of the world, not yeah. only in East Asia, but also in the Middle East. And I think the administration's legitimately worried that one more crisis in one of those places is going to make the situation very difficult indeed. I think we don't understand that we have a rendezvous with a geostrategic situation that's not necessarily favorable. And that is, as you say, we've got 1.4 billion person China and 144 million Russia now in a de facto alliance. And they're drawing into the orbit, not entirely, but by inference of you know oil and weaponry, Turkey and India. I never thought India would be so blatant about buying Russian oil or Turkey so blatant about supplying both sides or merging toward uh, Russia. And then now Iran doesn't just have a North Korean patron, it's it's got a Chinese and Russian patron, and the same as North Korea, it's got a Russian and North Korean, Russian again and now North Korean, and they're building some type of loose alliance that has a lot of resources, and I don't know how you to avoid it, but uh, it's something that at some point we've got to talk about, and I, I know that I'm for pushing Putin completely out of Ukraine if possible, and if not possible, at least back to the 2014 borders. But we are incrementally getting ourselves into a strategic situation that's not favorable to us, and we don't have a strategic resolution in mind, or we're not discussing one. And all I, I wrote something today is I just hope that the most zealous, and that's not I'm not referring to people here, but I mean some of the people on the left who this has been almost a religious cause, they understand that I hope when this is over, they'll be prominent 
in voting to restore the Pentagon stocks of artillery shells and javelins, and they'll be very pro-defense, and they'll be as adamant about the protection of Taiwan as they are Ukraine. But I don't know if that's going to be true. Something there's something strange that we haven't discussed or nobody's discussed about the left's fixation on Ukraine beyond just support, where it's almost a, a crusade. And I think it has something to do with the idea that Russian disinformation didn't work, Russian collusion didn't work, and they fixated on the idea, aha, we can finally prove to all you people that Putin is evil. And but we all knew that. But the, 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 when I ride a bike around Palo Alto and I see these signs you know, Ukraine on people's lawns or these flags on their Teslas. I've never seen that before. They have really adopted this into something that's almost quasi-religious. Well, Victor, I think I think it has a lot to do with, you know, when, when Stephen Cockin was on with us, I mean, it, I think his equation is right. I mean, I think support for Ukraine derives from Russian atrocities, right, mm -hmm. plus Ukrainian valor, Right. And I, so I think it's you know, I, I think there's good yeah. reason for it, Victor, you know, and and, and how uh, about the way I mean, we have a million people that have been persecuted, the Wagers. And and I think as far as Taiwan, nobody believes that Russia is going to take all of Ukraine. But a lot of people believe that China will take all of Taiwan. So the, I don't understand why there's, I'm not against the zeal, HR. I'm just wondering why there's not commiserate zeal to worry about take, losing all of Taiwan and a million people in, in camps right now that have that are treated terribly, that anecdote. And I don't understand for further why in 2014 this country snored when Obama basically explained in a hot mic in Seoul, South Korea, his quid pro quo about flexibility for Putin vis-a-vis -vis space, i.e. for uh, Obama to dismantle missile defense. And he went into Crimea and eastern Ukraine, and there really wasn't any reaction by our administration, by the very people right now that are giving sermons to everybody about they have to be hyperzealous. And you want, it's like a surreal. You want to say, okay, I'm I'm all for it. But we a lot of us wrote columns in 2014 that that was the time to stop him. And you didn't do anything. In fact, you had a quid pro quo with him. Well, Victor, uh, Victor I, from I, that hot mic. I, I want to defend people in Palo Alto with Ukrainian flags because I happen to be okay. one of them, although I'm not <laughs> I'm not a recent liberal <laughs> and I don't have all the other flags that are common in Palo Alto on my front front okay. lawn. I mean, a possibility is they came to their senses, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, occasionally reality bites. There's a couple of ways in which the sort of liberal consensus is coming to its senses. Europe is starting to realize that its energy policies were insane. A lot of people in Europe are realizing their defense policies were insane, and they were good liberals. They, they're coming to their senses. And I, I want to add, I, not I would just, be a little bit cynical if I could interject. I well, think the real reason was in 2014, they did not want to lodge any criticism against his holiness, Barack Obama. Okay. Uh, and, after he, and, and now the situation is different either. And of course, when you know the administration whatever the people say about trump that is a hiatus between two bookends 2014 and 2022 vis-a-vis -vis ukraine and nobody yeah. mentions that at all well there's been a lot of lines in the sand that we gave up on in 2014 is a shameful one but i also want to say you know the reason i think that people have changed their mind is it's not just about the level of atrocities it's not just recognition of the tremendous valor of the Ukrainians, but I think they've woken up to this fundamental question is what world do you want to live in? Uh, and is it, do you want to live in a world where we're back to armed invasions, grabbing territory in parts of Europe in your own backyard? 
And really, that the reason it, Ukraine matters, and it matters to us, is that we don't want to live in a world where we have our invasions uh, going on. That's why it has to be, you know, pushed back. But we, we've lived in a world like that since 1945. Uh, we remember. No, I mean, think about it. We didn't do anything for years in Yugoslavia. More importantly, we just sat there while the Hungarians were wiped out. In 68, uh, we sat there while the Czechs, because we said we don't dare get into a land war with the Soviet yeah, yeah. Union because it has 7,000 nukes. Now we've said we dare to get into a war with Russia, even though they have 7,000. And I think Gulf War One was was a good example of uh, the, the right uh, precedent and the opposite instinct. No, this shall not stand. We, we go back to it. But I think that's the reason. You know, Uyghurs. Well, I think there, there's a whole lot of atrocities going on in the world. The North Koreans are suffering hor horribly. The Somalis are suffering horribly. That's inside a country's border. That's not an armed takeover of another country. So I'm not justifying any of it. I just do think it, it's not just as craven as you paint it. Now, that will come to the test. Do we take, you're exactly right. Are we going to take that same feeling seriously about Taiwan? And do we have the, are we going to spend the money and have the means and the will to take that seriously about Taiwan? I don't know, but at least don't, don't the, the, um, the coming of their senses about Ukraine, uh, I think, is is a little less awful than you paint. I offer the insight that that West the Western liberal public, especially in the English speaking world, has spent about two hundred years, if not longer, falling for other people's nationalism, and it's very inconsistent. You never quite know who's going to pull on our heartstrings. Garibaldi. Uh, was good yeah. at it. Uh, actually, the Greeks were good at it. Nobody Very knows good. that better than you, Victor. But but we have this tendency to fall in love with other people's national struggles, and uh, and sometimes we really offer meaningful support, and other times we do just put the flags in the yard. I think this is part of a quite well established pattern that goes back uh, to the early nineteenth century. But I think there is a more interesting. Uh, an important question to address here. And that is a good one for you, Victor. You've written one of the great books on World War II. World War II has this strange uh, way of starting. It starts with sort of overtures of what look like small, discrete conflicts. And it's only gradually that they roll up together to be a world war. I've been feeling very queasy about the world situation uh, for the better part of a year, I realized back in January of last year that Putin was going to invade. And I keep asking myself, what's next up? Because if you get a crisis uh, simultaneously in, let's say, Iran, suppose there's a, a, a fighting over Iran's nuclear program, it's conceivable in the next 12 or 24 months, and the Chinese make a move against Taiwan, then suddenly you've got three simultaneous conflicts. As a scholar of World War II, Victor, do you sense that we might be on the edge of something much scarier than Cold War II, namely World War III? Yeah, I'm, I've been worried about, uh, and I wrote something about that, somewhere between June 22nd of 1941 and December 7th, the word Great War disappeared from the Western vocabulary, suddenly for the first time called World War I. And you're right, but up until 41 in June 22nd, there was the Polish War, there was the fall of France, there was the Greek, but there wasn't World War II in common currency. And then everybody put it all together and said, oh my God, this was all connected, especially after Pearl Harbor. And I think 
right now, there's a lot of juggling under the radar of our enemies, and they're trying to, to game this and see at what point they see an opening or advantage. I was in Israel in June, and I, I, I talked to a lot of people in the government, and they were very worried. Uh, they had historical problems with Ukraine, as you know, from World War II, but they were worried that they had certain protocols with the Russians, and HR knows them better than anybody, about uh, their ability to stop Hezbollah by going into Russia-controlled airspace in Syria. And even the gesture that they were in league with the West overtly supporting Ukraine would change that dynamic quite uh, quickly. And then they were also worried that they had felt that Putin was not whole hog behind the Russian uh, enrichment, I mean, the Iranian enrichment. And now he might not just be behind Iranian, Iranian enrichment, but hypersonic missile delivery systems that could go into Israel. And so I think that's true of all these things, China, as you mentioned, North Korea. And we, we're not, I'm not saying you can prevent it, but the quicker this thing is over, the better for everybody. And if Russia keeps saying, and they're mobilizing 300,000 more people that they consider this, I think the other day, Putin said, there's never, I don't know if he's telling the truth, I can cite examples that make him a liar, but he said, there's never been a large conventional war against a nuclear power that he lost on the border, that they were willing to lose, and we're not going to lose this war. But if you take him at his word, uh, the only way Ukraine can get every Russian out is they've defined victory back to the 2013 border is a level, and we talked about this last time, is a level of material support and a death count, you know, could be up to 200,000 plus have died. It could be up to 400,000. It could be $500 billion they need. And if we're going to do this, we should right now have sort of a a war production board, and we should be producing shells and javelins and missiles like we've never produced them. It's going to take five years to replenish the javelin arsenal, and but we're not no, doing any think, of that. I don't we're, think it'll take five years, Victor, but it'll take long. I mean, we we went through six years of production. Yeah, uh, yeah. but we were we're, we're, we're sleeping through this though. Yeah. Don't you feel like we're kind of sleeping through? All well, of I, these I think that there's been some movement in the right direction, but not enough. Right. It's been inadequate. So the, the National Defense Authorization Act does have money specifically set aside for expanding the industrial base. And there needs to be not only, you know, an increase in the defense budget to make up for the backlog of of, of ammunition, but also a huge bow wave of deferred modernization uh, over over, you know, since the Obama administration, really. And then, and then finally, you know, it, it, what's what is required is multi-year budgeting to give the defense yeah. industry more predictability. Because you know, right now, it, 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 they can't open up additional production lines and know that that demand is going to be sustained over multiple years. So there are a number there are a number of, of reforms that are absolutely necessary. Not only, as you mentioned, uh, Victor, to, to make up, you know, for you know for uh, what's been expended already uh, and and uh, provided to the Ukrainians. But to prepare for future contingencies, maybe involving you know, China. But but of course, what we need is we need a strong defense to deter a war. Uh, with, yeah, with I got an email the other day from an Israeli and said, "Those three hundred thousand shells you're taking out of Israel were kind of for us too." And I don't know what he meant by that, but 
we're trying to we're draining stocks all over the world it seems to me that from the news reports and we're not talking about how we're going to replace them if they go into taiwan the chinese and what i'm getting at is if you juxtapose a lot of people on the left their rhetoric about and their zeal for getting every russian out of ukraine and their pronouncements that i've heard i won't mention names we know some of them that Ukraine is on the cusp of victory any minute. I mean, they're going to win. And you and you juxtapose that with their lack of advocacy for massive war production mobilization and a very radical change in our, our deterrence to meet this ambitious agenda that they're advancing. It's, it's striking because they're kind of sleepwalking well it's just going to be sort of like bombing milosevic and it'll be over and we won't it's not this is going to be the largest conventional war we've seen since vietnam and maybe korea and and nobody's talking about getting getting ready for it there's, there's two things I, I don't get here in hr maybe you can help me five years to start up a production line to do artillery shells i mean december 7th 1941 uh you know let's count five years from that oh yeah we'll, we'll get some tanks to you five years from now no, uh, I, know, it's Henry Kaiser. I, I agree john i agree with you i mean i remember i'm on the side of being an american not an american right we can do we can do we can do this henry kaiser said <laughs> oh sure i'll he signed a contract to make liberty ships and 90 days later he had made a port made the production facility and sailed the first ship none of this five years I, for one no. round of ammunition i think i have the answer for that john when I was 15, my grandfather said, we're going to irrigate every morning. And I said, oh, do I have to get up at 7 a.m.? And he said, I've been up since 4 a.m., that generation. Well, yeah. So that, generation, that generation is very different than our generation. Well, this, isn't, this, this is about getting the permits and the, and the contracts. It's not about, I still believe Americans can get up at 4 in the morning if, if they want so to. I guess what I'm saying is, if for each person that says we're going to win at no cost, then why don't they have yeah. an an ancillary plan to do it. And with that plan would have to be a rabbit, uh, all almost total war, I mean, to, to defeat this guy. Well, here, no, they're they're not really, you know, here's, here's something, just a quick point here. You know, I know we're lamenting, you know, the shortages that we have and we uh, we need to make up for them, but we are going to make up for them. I, I just saw commercial contracts for production for our artillery shells for the for the first time, rather than doing it exclusively through U.S. arsenals. So, I mean, it, it, there, there, some adjustments are being made right now, but you know who's got a much tougher problem? Hey, Russia does. And you know who else does? China does, because China depends on a lot of Russian weapon systems. So does India. I mean, I'll tell you, I think Russian, you know, the Russian uh, you know, military industry is dead. I mean, and, and all of yeah. their clients are now you know, probably wishing they had diversified their weapon stocks. So I think, you know, I, I think we, you know, it's, it's obviously important for us to be self-critical and understand the difficulty of the situation we're in. But I think the Russians are in a much worse, much worse shape. So don't, don't we need to win this this year? Uh, if this turns into a multi, multi-year slog, it's a pretty bad situation. And I don't understand how even giving them 14 tanks, I sort of remember my World War II histories, uh, you know, Kursk wasn't for, fought with 14 tanks. <laughs> Uh, Russia is actually starting their winter offensive. They seem to be moving forwards. I don't see the plan to how this is over this year. Well, this goes to, this, I think Victor was making this point. Were you, Victor, about, I mean, it's yeah, about it was, incrementalism, I right? I mean, enough with the incrementalism. Hey, we'll give you this weapon, but not that weapon. We'll give you, you know, 31 but, tanks. But if you're, gonna, you know, if you're not going to be incremental, you have to change your mentality. And the, and the people who are the strongest supporters of this 
Biden keeps bragging about all the things he's done. And we, we forget that he said, well, I wouldn't object if it was a minor incursion or he offered a ride of, for, to Zelensky to get out of town the first week. But forget all that. He he they keep bragging about, you know, Aviator Joe and we're going to get really tough. But there he if he really believed it, he'd give a talk or Millie would. Millie would say, you know, uh this is what I advise. We've got to do this and we've got to, we've got to galvanize. And he'd say, you know what? We're short on recruitment. Here's what I'm going to do to make sure that, and he'd be public about it. I'm sure he's doing it privately, but it's, it's a very weird Orwellian situation. I gave a talk in Newport about some military affairs and I had four people say, I'm not sending my kid, by the way, the same old stuff. My grandfather fought in Vietnam. My dad fought in Gulf War. I'm not sending my kid to that Pentagon. No way. And what the subtext was is that Millie and the Pentagon have a, offended an entire working class constituency that, as I said, and got kind of in trouble with you guys last time, has died at twice the numbers of their population. And that's just one element of this. That's the manpower element. But you've got to get those people to come back into the military. You've got to get ramp up military production. You've got to get some leaders in there uh, that, you know, don't let a balloon go across the United States and they so he send a less to that. Putin was watching that. And then there was a report, uh, HR, last two weeks ago that Putin is talking with the Taliban because of the 60,000 vehicles, right. uh, including Jeeps, trucks, uh, Humvees, and I, I saw a figure of 500,000 automatic weapons and machine guns, 500,000. At the same time that report came out, there was a report that the Russians were complaining that they had first-generation AK-47s that didn't work and bolt-action World War II rifle, and they were not getting their wounded out of the battle zones because they didn't have transport. The next article said, from an American official, we just don't, and a Pentagon, we just don't think the Taliban would dare do that. They just wouldn't want to sell that stuff to Russia and, and break up this new relationship we have. And I thought to myself, are these people crazy? You, you're trying to tell me that he, Putin could not use 60,000 vehicles and 500,000 automatic weapons for his depleted stocks and that you, a Russian wouldn't know how to drive an American Jeep or use an M4, this is crazy. And the Taliban who's done all sorts of things to us wouldn't be willing to make a couple of billion dollars selling this stuff off. But it, it, this, there's, we're in a, a state, I, I'm trying to get to the point, I'm trying to convey the idea we're in a state of collective denial. I think Neil was right about that, about the geostrategic consequences and the, the wherewithal to complete this ambitious agenda. I think where we agree, Victor, is that the kind of enthusiasm for Ukraine that, that swept liberal America, replacing Black Lives Matter signs <laughs> with Ukrainian flags, has had a certain strategic naivety, might one mm -hmm. put it that way. Uh, Much better nobody quote, actually yeah. has the faintest idea how to stop this war, including the people uh, in Washington whose, whose job it is. The problem is that both sides think that time is on their side. They both can't be right. But it means that neither Zelensky nor Putin is remotely open to the idea of negotiations, even although we've uh, we've clearly suggested that to both sides. So we've got this open-ended commitment now. We keep having to increase the firepower that we make available to the Ukrainians because we really can't 
have them lose now. We've backed them, and and that means they can't lose. So that that much has already been established. But what it takes to win is not clear, and Putin's nuclear threats clearly do uh, intimidate President Biden, who worries a good deal uh, that he uh, could inadvertently start World War III. So we have a very familiar pattern, which uh, brings to mind Lyndon Johnson's plight, uh, where you escalate uh, in a rather far-off war uh, without wanting to escalate too much, because, of course, uh, there are all kinds of potential downsides to doing so. You mind the domestic politics, uh, but you end up in the worst of all possible strategic outcomes. I think the, the decision to escalate in Vietnam is probably the worst strategic decision the United States has made in its history. Uh, but what's amazing to me is the ways in which this could have similar disastrous consequences. And it's very hard to get anybody to talk about that. Let me put another question to you, Victor. It seems to me that we used the term axis too casually in the wake of 9-11, and there never really was an axis of evil uh, mm. of the sort that was famously referenced by George W. Bush in a speech I think David Frum wrote. But there is now a real axis. Uh, China, Russia, and Iran are working closely together, maybe with North Korean involvement too. This is a proper axis, uh, and it's increasingly uh, acting in, in concert. The axis, of course, in World War II didn't act in perfect concert. If it had, heaven knows, the outcome might have been different. But I, I wonder how far the term axis is now appropriate and how far we should be thinking not narrowly of what's happening in Bakhmut, what's happening today in Ukraine, but broadly what's happening globally. Let, let me ask you a question. Did you read Bob Kagan's Challenging the I US did. is a Historic Mistake? I thought that piece was really wrong. I think yeah. right now Challenging the US is a huge historic opportunity and the axis of Russia, China and Iran is planning to do just that. Yeah, I think what I, I agree with you. When I read that essay, I think that he thinks, he looks at all of our assets and he thinks we can do almost anything. But the fact that we we have these assets and we can't do anything, not that we can do anything, that we can do nothing in a sense, makes it, it earns us a greater contempt. When you mention these spinoffs, I think it, I think before Ukraine, to give one example, and Erdogan would not say, as he did two weeks ago, the Athenians are gonna wake up the residents of Athens one night and they're gonna have a one of our missiles come into Athens. And then he said something like, the Dodecanese islands have always been uh, Turkish, they haven't. And uh, he's still bothering people in the Aegean about natural gas. And he's, he's much more likely to do something that, than he was say in 2020. And the same is true, I think of Iran. And the same, I think, is true of North Korea. And their view is that we are now tied down psychologically and materially in Ukraine, and we're in a period of left-wing governance that is pacifistic, that won't fund the necessary wherewithal to conduct that war and to, remain, to maintain deterrence in these peripheral theaters, and they're going to take advantage of it. But they're waiting for the best opportune moment. And that's why it's very dangerous for something that's symbolic like this balloon. Anything that gives the wrong impression that we're weak, because we're not weak, but anything that gives the impression to these players in these diverse landscapes, it could be catastrophic, especially for our allies. Let me let me put a question to the group here. So Exodus of Evil popped up in a George W. Bush State of the Union speech. 
The president speaks on Tuesday night to the nation, to the world. It's a speech he's been working on for days, if not weeks. It's his game, his rules here. Uh, granted, these speeches are a spectacle. I'm a recovering speechwriter, so I enjoy them, but that tells you what warp priorities I have. We've been talking about these world problems, and here is the president's chance to say something cleanly to the to the country and to the world. Victor, what should he say? What can he say? What should or he say? What, will what he should say? he say? Yeah. What should he say? <laughs> Two different questions. I, no, I think, I think you know what he will say. What should he say? What he should say is that we, we're living in an increasingly dangerous world. And with great reluctance, we have to face that, that our ends and our means are incompatible as of now. And we have to ramp up the defense budget and produce enough deterrence so that uh, we can live in a safer world. He's going to have, he only gets animated, if you think about it, when he's talking about his enemies or the mega, ultra mega or these, and then he gets, his eyes get beady and he gets angry. But he's got to talk about some sort of unity in the country because, and it would be an, a wonderful opportunity because on every issue, literally every issue, he's polling be, below 40%. And personally, he's only at 43, I think, today. And in the poll yesterday, both DeSantis and Trump beat him. So he should be calling for national unity, not go after the opposition and talk about these foreign threats, divert attention politically from his disaster at home. But more importantly, to get the country ready for some not, we're going to be in a recession. I think I'll defer to my economist expert here, but I think we're going to be in recessionary or stagflationary times in summer to a greater degree than we are now. And we're going to be seeing a very, very robust Iran and a robust China and uh, a robust North Korea and Putin getting his second wind and people who are supporting this war not willing to go all the way. This alliance between deterrent hawks and the left-wing doves is going to fall, start to unwind very quickly. Because when you start to mention the, the, the defense budget and what's necessary to win in um, what's necessary to win in Ukraine, they're not going to go for that. I want to take up Neil's Neil's line of questioning. Is it is it a terrible thing to attack the United States or not, or to challenge the United States? And, and you're the great historian of World War II. Aren't we sort of like 1938-ish here? Uh, so uh, a president with a not very successful economy uh, behind him, uh, but and uh, a very an isolationist country that is you know seeing horrible things happening in Spain and Manchuria and God knows where, but or Abyssinia and, and not. Uh, very happy about it, but still very isolationist. And then comes the Pearl Harbor moment. And we've seen sort of a teeny inkling of a Pearl Harbor moment uh, among the left with Ukraine. Uh, that changed their minds a lot also with the Europeans. Uh, so I, I wonder, you know, would the invasion of Taiwan be a Pearl Harbor? Does there come a, it, it, that's the great question. Uh, not will we prepare, America will never prepare ahead of time, get it all ready and, and be ready to go. But will we rally? And, and uh, will this become the Pearl Harbor moment that brings us all together? That's that's the question for us about whether we'll prevail, uh, not whether we can get it all together now and deter it. That's well, a question for my World War II uh, historian. <laughs> you really believe that the left feels uh, that China poses the existential threat, which it does, as much as Russia, because that's the key to it. The yeah. real enemy and the great danger we're facing is China, which the left has a soft spot for. And the, the lesser power and the ossified country 
they are obsessed with for a variety of reasons that go back to collusion yeah. and disinformation. Taiwan's not Hawaii. The yes, national thing would be to say, they, oh, I don't heck? think they would. I do not think they would rally on Taiwan's behalf the on Ukraine, even though it's been a much longer uh, concern of the United States and it's got quasi-ally status with us, but I just don't think they're going... There's a lot of reasons why, and part of it is effective. It's the same thing about the Wuhan lab. You can't get anybody on the left to admit today that that thing was birthed in a lab that was controlled by the PLA, not that they did it deliberately, but it was there. They don't They don't believe that today. And so they have a soft spot. I'd like to get Niels and HR's thoughts on what the president should say about China, because it seems to me he has a balancing act. He has to talk tough, given the events of last week and this weekend, but he also has to talk in an optimistic tone, HR, about diplomacy. So how does he balance the two? Yeah, I think he just talks about the competition with the Chinese Communist Party and makes it clear that this form of aggression of a balloon fits into a much broader context of, of economic aggression, sustained industrial espionage. And, you know, what uh, what what Victor talked about at the beginning, you know, the, the behavior of the party against its own people. Right. So you should speak in in favor of the Chinese people, people. and against the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, and I think that's a tremendous opportunity. I think he also has a huge opportunity is. As, uh, as as Victor has alluded to, that hey, we 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 have to get serious, right? We have to we have to strengthen our defense because really hard power is what deters aggression, right? I think I think if there's a, a big lesson from Ukraine, it's that you know sanctions and relentless diplomacy don't prevent wars. I mean, really hard power prevents wars, and and I hope he'll take the opportunity to ask young Americans uh, to join our armed forces, you know, and. And uh, and make clear, you know, our, you know, our military is not woke, right? Our military is not extremist. Our military are young men and women who are determined to protect their country, and they 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 are prepared to fight for each other, to sacrifice for each other. And and I think uh, people on the left and right, you know, ought to try to magnify that message. And if and if there's you know an issue, I think the issue is with. Uh, with the civilian leadership uh, within the administration that has been foisting a political agenda on the military, a resistant military. Uh, and, and you know, so but I hope he, he does make a, a call to serve um, and then and then talks to the country, frankly, about the, you know, the, the importance of the competition with the Chinese Communist Party. Well, what he should say, as opposed to what he will say, is we clearly are going to have to increase our defense expenditure and focus uh, much more carefully on our ability to supply our military in events of uh, further conflicts in the world. And that means that we must take uh, steps to rein in expenditure in other areas because we're on an unsustainable fiscal path. And he should cite John Cochrane uh, and his uh, wonderful book, noting the inflationary pressures that have arisen from the- Hold up the book. <laughs> Yes, that's what he should say. Um, he should say that we're in danger within a matter of years of having more money going on uh, servicing the federal debt uh, than on defense, national security. He should say that. But that's not what he's going to say, because this is a State of the Union that is the prelude to his seeking re-election. Right. Uh, and uh, therefore, what he is going to do is say a whole bunch of uh, of things directed at his progressive base. So there'll be climate, there'll be rah-rah Ukraine, uh, there'll be nasty things said about Republicans and 
pro-Trump fascist elements, all that stuff will, will be trotted out. But then there'll also be the things that are directed at swing voters, the things that he's actually taken from Donald Trump, America first, uh, a kind of national uh, economic strategy, which is just code for uh, protectionism. That's what he I think will say, yeah. uh, and and in that sense, it's a really depressing prospect because I I really worry about where we're heading. Let me tell you what I worry about. I don't really worry about World War Three. I don't think this administration is going to get us into World War Three. Rather, I think they're going to get us into a position of such overextension that we have to fold when the Chinese make a move on Taiwan. And that is my nightmare, that we end up in a situation, perhaps it's under President Harris rather than President Biden several years hence, but when the chips are down and the move is made and the United States then discovers that it doesn't have the wherewithal uh, to take back Taiwan or to prevent uh, a successful Chinese blockade or invasion, we will be in Suez crisis mode. And that's the thing that that I find most troubling about our present national trajectory. Mm -hmm. John, there's one other thing he could do. He could hold up a coin, a trillion dollar coin and say, I have solved our debt problems. Well, let me, let me before we get into the debt uh, joke, <laughs> I just wanna emphasize what Neil just said. The danger actually is, is folding. We're not gonna lose, they're not gonna invade the US, but it, it's almost inevitable that um, in Taiwan, in Ukraine, when we get tired of it, and God knows in the Middle East, that uh, you know we don't have that energy to go back. The, the, the balloon is a joke. And let's remember, this is a joke, it's a snafu. It reveals incompetence, uh, not a well-executed plan of delivery. You know what it reminds me of, John? When Matthias Roost, a teenager from Hamburg, landed yes. his plane in Red Square and That's exposed it. that the Soviet Union had no air defenses. And it was it was an absolutely revealing moment of how completely decayed that you know what, was. You know what it reminds me of, John? When April Glaspie, controversial whether that was, she told Saddam Hussein right on the eve of the first Gulf War that I think it was in August that the United States had no strategic interest in inter-Arab boundary disputes. Yeah. Or when Dean Atchison, even more controversial because the left denies this ever happened, but when he said that he made a map of uh, U.S. Uh, allies under the nuclear umbrella and he conveniently left out Korea. And of course, that was noted elsewhere. So these little tiny gestures uh, are important because they are windows into the soul of a nation. And yeah. that balloon, looked. people look at that in a way that... Eh. We I don't. think it's it's windows into bureaucratic incompetence, but not not for us. It is so, yes. For no, our bureaucrat and their bureaucratic incompetence. Uh, uh, no, but no, I mean, let me, we, let me just, we, we view that. You ask they me a view, question. They view that. It, it also there's a hot. There's supposed to be a hotline mechanism, and that's also not working. So there's a lot of little stuff that's not working. Now let me give you some good news. Defense is cheap. <laughs> uh, you know, this is not. We're, we're talking. We're spending what, like two or three percent of GDP. Another a, a percent of GDP is cheap. We have thrown this kind of money down rat holes well, like nobody's business. The the Chips Act, the subsidies for green cars, so long as they're made by unions in the United States, we are throwing hundreds of billions of dollars down rat holes. You do not need to throw Grandma's Social Security off the train in order to have a serious defense budget. Uh, defense is much, much cheaper than you think compared to the size of a modern welfare state. So that's that's the good news. That You're trying to, to convince us of that or me of that? Yeah. I mean, well, so, somebody said, somebody said, well, I mean, and somebody said there's a there's a serious financial problem here. 
And I'm just I, noting Secretary that Blinken explained the other day why he wasn't going to China. I was driving and I said, it will be within 20 seconds that he will mention climate change. Yeah. And of course, 20 seconds later, he said, and this is not going to interfere with our strong partnerships with the Chinese government on matters of mutual concern, like our investments in climate change and et cetera. And it was almost an apology that he was canceling this trip. It was pathetic. And it reminded me of the Anchorage March 2000, you know, 21 with the first major thing. They Chinese basically said, screw you guys, you're, well, we don't like you. And they just said, OK, you don't like us. Look, at least he's facing reality that if you care about climate change, uh, buying Teslas to drive down to your private jet Palo Alto is nothing. It's all about China burning coal to build nuclear, yes. uh, to burn to do electricity. That's it. That's climate change. So, and John, if, and John, if you care about debt, the trillion dollar coin. Okay, sorry. <laughs> and, who's, and whose face goes on that coin, by the way? Uh, so the trillion dollar coin is a silly idea. Uh, so what it's about really is that we have a debt limit, which is, a, I think, a useful device. It's our only remaining budget control system. When you sit down and say, how much are we spending overall? The, the remaining budget stuff doesn't work. That's heretical. Everyone thinks you should get rid of it, but I'll offer that one. The debt is very badly measured. So the trillion dollar coin is this, there's in the measurement of debt, uh, coins issued by the treasury don't count. So aha, we can do that. There's, an even, there's a cleverer way. The treasury, it only counts the principal value of debt, not the interest. So if you inter issued interest only debt with no principal, aha, that yeah. would work too. But the spirit of the thing is you're not allowed to get around it. We're not, you know, we're supposed to be doing something about that, not, not getting around it. And that's why I think none of these ideas will go anywhere. Uh, yes, the, the formula for measuring the debt could be exploited, uh, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. Neil? Oh, also, yeah. this is not about, you know, this is not about a serious default right. uh, of the right. US. This is about a, a technical question of the, of the debt limit. Um, yeah, it's a silly idea. Um, but unfortunately, debate about the the federal debt has been silly for about 20 years. Right. And it's really hard to get people uh, to talk seriously about the unsustainable nature of US fiscal policy, uh, because uh, the, 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 the mismatch between expenditures and, and revenue has been structural for, for years and the projections that the Congressional Budget Office produces become more and more eye-popping uh, with with the uh, the debt to GDP ratio and that's public debt debt in, in, in the hands of the public heading towards two 200 percent uh, and so what what frustrates me is that we get these silly uh, Twitter discussions of trillion dollar coins instead of a serious, discussion about where this leads. And where it leads is that once you get positive real interest rates, then the cost of this huge stock of debt is suddenly a meaningful uh, item in your budget. And when that is a big item in your budget, other things start to get squeezed. And the political economy of the US Congress means that, that national security is easier to squeeze uh, than uh, entitlements, and that's Good. why we—that's why I worry about where we're heading because it seems to me that we're heading into a position, rather like Britain between the wars, where our commitments around the world are no longer affordable, and our industrial base is no longer equal to the task uh, of large-scale defence of those overseas interests. So, forgive me if I sound somewhat despondent, but it, it doesn't feel like we're at all on a on a, a good path. That's why the State of the Union will be 
will be a kind of charade. It'll be a charade in which a whole bunch of empty rhetoric will be deployed uh, to try to distract us from this fundamental growing structural vulnerability that the United States has at home and abroad. Let, let me just add two things. Yeah, Washington has not gotten the message that throwing money at things is no longer going to happen. Second, even the CPO projections are nothing bad happens. Uh, if when China invades Taiwan, there's going to be the mother of all financial crises, and we're going to need uh, stimulus, bailout, and military stuff. Uncle Sam goes and, and says, we want 10 trillion more debt. Uh, you know, that that's on top of the CPO projections. And finally, there is no reason for the US to be borrowing money right now. Government debt's a great and wonderful invention. You borrow money to fight wars, to fight horrible recessions, uh, to fight temporary things, and then you pay it back. Our economy is booming. There's no reason whatsoever on, in economics that we should be running trillion dollar deficits at this point. Yeah, I, I, I think it's booming, but if, I think we have, a. and correct me if I'm wrong, we're up to about 64% of labor non-participation rate. Some <laughs> of that's COVID or stuff. Right. And then I was looking at the real estate market the other day with a lot of loans that are not competitive, but they're still out there are 7% 30-year loans. And if you look at the days that houses are on the market now, what's happening is people will not lower this price because they've got this inflation acculturated idea that their house is always going to be, it's worth this imaginary number. And so it's gone from about here in the San Joaquin Valley, about 11 days up to 90 days and growing, they can't sell these homes at 7% interest rates and they do not want to lower the price and they need the money. So, you know, there's a rock and a hard place. And at some point people are going to say, you know what, I got a, I got a job out of state or my daughter's getting married. Or I got, I again need the money. And they're going to start, this thing is going to, I think erode yeah. very quickly. Very but that's quickly. a short, that's a short term yeah. thing. Debt yeah. repayment is have, about long-term growth. Yeah. Well, we have and the answer is 50, $450 billion it's going to cost the service the debt by the end of the year oh, yeah. this year. So yeah. I don't, I don't, I, I, I know we have a strong economy, but I think there's a lot of reasons to believe it's not going to be so strong by the end of the year. And that's not no, we, talking we about have a, it. A, we have a weak economy that yeah. is doing the best it can and yes, more that's demand. A way to put it. More demand is not going to help. More no. government spending, more stimulus. What you need now is 20, 30 years of really strong supply side growth. And that's yeah. the only way you're going to get out of your fiscal problems. So I'm worried about Neil coming out of that speech on Tuesday in something of a funk. So I know exactly what will lift his mood. And that is Sunday afternoon slash evening, depending on where you are in the U.S., the Super Bowl. HR question, where are you going to be on Sunday? Are you going to be in Arizona or some undisclosed location? I'll, I'll be at an undisclosed location. I will not be able to go to Arizona, but uh, go, go birds. Go birds, as we say in Philadelphia. <laughs> Victor, it's something of a running joke on the show. We constantly gang up on Neil and his dislike of American football. Would you like to pile on? Or I used to be a fanatic fan, but I don't watch it anymore. I don't know why. I I don't keep because up because like it's I used boring. To. Yeah, maybe the last five years I haven't. Because it's the most. It's become too much of a celebrity. To it's man. too much celebrity. You know, it's not the old days of Jim Taylor and Jim Brown and all those guys. Bart Starr. It's just celebrity, celebrity, celebrity. And the halftime show has become sort of a Petronian satiricon event. You know, it's you're not it's, a big Rihanna fan, I take it. Yeah, it's 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 something right out of Petronius. So it's I kind of I like to do it because uh, 
I'm feeling a lot better and I like to ride again. So that's the best time to ride a bike is during the Super Bowl. There's no, the streets are empty and you can ride. Yeah, and never exactly. see a so, so John, what are you going to do on Sunday when the rest of society comes to a halt? Uh, well, well, normally our tradition is we go out to dinner because it's really easy to get uh, a restaurant <laughs> reservation. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm going to be in Frankfurt. So my dinner is going to be uh, a schnitzel uh, somewhere in Frankfurt. <laughs> Okay, Neil, what's the MO in the Ferguson household? Do you turn off the TVs and just tell the boys nothing is going on? Do you just keep them away from that? or? Well, we are a dedicated sporting family, but yes. our, our attentions are entirely on real sports. Uh, <laughs> rugby football and, and association football, uh, sometimes known here as soccer. And it's an exciting time of year. The Six Nations just began. Scotland won a famous victory over England uh, on Saturday. I'm still sort of walking on air after that, an Arsenal of five points clear at the top of the Premier League. Super Bowl? I mean, Schmooper Bowl. Folks, Neil is on Twitter, by the way, in case you'd like to offer your comments on that. What was all that? <laughs> <laughs> Real sports. Try them, America. Try them. HR knows I'm right. Rugby's the better game. You saw rugby, the world. Rugby is the better game. You rugby know what good game. sport is Play. like. And and Victor's right. The Super Bowl is the most Roman of spectacles. The decadence, <laughs> it's just almost unbearable. I find the halftime show obscene. I can't bear to watch it. And as for this, as for the sporting events itself, the tragedy of this mutant form of rugby is that it gets steadily worse with every passing year. This is what Victor's observed. It's got worse. The commercial breaks get longer. The plays get more predictable. It's just a fail. And you guys have to shut it down. And you know, I bet you don't even like nachos, do you? You don't like nachos either, do you? No, I don't like that. It's not about eating. The big American mistake is to think that you should sit and stuff your face. What you should do at a sporting event is sing your heart out and hurl obscenities at the other side's fans. It's cathartic, not some kind of, you know, feast. You're going there for catharsis. And this is what Americans miss about sport. That's why that's why you're all unhappy and depressed and on meds. Because on Saturday, you just eat freaking nachos instead of shouting abuse at the Tottenham fans, which makes me and my sons feel so much better. And Neil, you're morphing into Ricky Gervais the more you talk. I think it's it's kind of yeah, transatlantic syndrome. <laughs> Very good. Well, gentlemen, very good conversation today. Victor, great to have you back. Thank on you. For Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate hey, it. Victor, great to yeah. be with you. And good HR, good you guys. Good luck on Sunday, HR. All right. Go Eagles. Okay. <laughs> go birds. So that's a wrap for this episode of Goodfellows. On behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, HR McMaster, our guest today, Victor Davis Hanson. We hope you enjoyed our talk. We'll be back soon with a new episode. Till then, take care. As always, thanks for watching. So long. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.